Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. is Democracy Now! Without sufficient safe water, food and sanitation that only a humanitarian ceasefire would bring, child deaths due to disease could well surpass those already killed in bombardments. As the death toll in Gaza tops 20,000, including 8,000 children, UN officials plead for a new ceasefire as the humanitarian crisis escalates amidst heavy Israeli attacks. On Wednesday, the UN Security Council was forced to postpone a vote for a third time on Gaza due to opposition from the Biden administration. We'll get the latest. Then to the Colorado Supreme Court's historic decision to bar Donald Trump from the Colorado primary ballot over his role in the January 6th insurrection. And we'll look at Trump's increasingly extreme anti-immigrant rhetoric on the campaign trail. I think the real number is 15, 16 million people into our country when they do that. We got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Palestinian officials say the death toll from 75 days of Israeli attacks on the Gaza Strip has topped 20,000, nearly 1 percent of the Gazan population. At least 8,000 children are among the dead. On Wednesday, a World Health Organization emergency team reached the Al-Ahli Hospital, which had been northern Gaza's last functioning medical facility where people could undergo surgery. WHO team coordinator Sean Casey says conditions have further deteriorated with the bodies of the dead placed in rows in the courtyard. Patients who've gone weeks without needed surgery and growing rates of postoperative infections due to a lack of antibiotics. What we found here is a hospital that's really almost completely stopped functioning. Two days ago, uh, a number of staff were detained. Um, just last Saturday, uh, we visited Al-Shifa, and they were telling us how they were sending surgical cases here because Al-Athli had some of the only operating theaters left in uh, northern Gaza, in Gaza City, and those are now no longer functional. They don't have specialists. They don't have surgeons. Uh, they don't have power. They don't have water. Uh, they don't have food. The United Nations Human Rights Office says it's received disturbing information about a summary execution of Palestinians by Israeli forces in Gaza City Tuesday. The U.N. agency reports that during a raid on a building in the Al-Ramel neighborhood, Israeli soldiers allegedly separated a group of men from women and children, then shot and killed at least 11 of the men in front of their family members. Soldiers then allegedly ordered the women and children into a room and either shot at them or threw a grenade into the room, seriously injuring some of them, including an infant and a child. Meanwhile, Israel continues to attack southern Gaza. On Wednesday, a three-day-old infant was pulled from the rubble alive but injured after Israeli strikes flattened residential buildings in Rafah. We saved her life at the last moment. We couldn't see her because of the smoke created by the rocket. 
so we were looking for her. My cousin carried her outside so she could breathe properly. Three days old, a small baby girl, three days old, choked because of the rocket strikes. The United Nations Security Council has for the third time this week postponed a vote on a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and for Israel to allow shipments of food, water, fuel and medicine into the besieged territory. Several Security Council members have expressed frustration with the United States for repeatedly delaying votes and for threatening to once again veto any resolution. Meanwhile, President Biden had just a brief response Wednesday when asked by a reporter about the unprecedented death toll in Gaza. And your reaction to 20,000 dead in Gaza, that death toll reached today? French President Emmanuel Macron has criticized Israel's assault on Gaza while repeating his call for a truce leading to a humanitarian ceasefire. On Wednesday, Macron told a French TV news channel, quote, we cannot let the idea take root that an efficient fight against terrorism implies to flatten Gaza or attack civilian populations indiscriminately, he said. France's health minister tendered his resignation on Wednesday to protest an anti-immigrant bill backed by President Emmanuel Macron and approved by a wide margin in the French parliament. The bill makes it far easier for France to expel asylum seekers, set strict immigration quotas, makes it harder for children of immigrants to become French citizens, and delays immigrants' access to welfare benefits by several years. Far-right leader Marine Le Pen has called the amended bill an ideological victory for her party. In Brussels, the European Union has agreed to a new pact on migration and asylum that Amnesty International warned, quote, will set European asylum law back for decades to come and lead to greater human suffering, unquote. The agreement comes after three years of negotiations. It allows for the detention of migrant families, including those with young children, and fast tracks the deportation of newly arrived asylum seekers. EU Parliament member Malin Bjork said in a statement, quote, in the face of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, the EU showed that solidarity with those seeking protection is possible. But instead of building on that experience, the deal just struck will institutionalize and worsen the most repressive practices, mass detention, pushbacks and cruelty at the borders, unquote. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott chartered a flight Tuesday that brought more than 120 immigrants from the U.S.-Mexico border to Chicago. It's a major escalation of Abbott's policy of transporting asylum seekers to Democratic-led cities and comes just after Abbott signed Senate Bill 4, which makes it a state crime to enter Texas outside of a U.S. port of entry. This comes amidst mounting tensions in Chicago over the arrival of migrants from the southern border and a worsening housing and health crisis that faces them. On Sunday, a five-year-old boy staying at a temporary shelter died amidst a spate of illnesses at the facility. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson is calling for more resources to support migrant families and an end to the political weaponization of the issue. Um, Everyone knows that the right-wing extremism in this country has targeted democratically ran cities. And quite frankly, uh, we've been very intentional about going after democratically ran cities that are led by people of color. And their whole motivation is to create disruption and chaos, because that's what that particular party has been about. NBC News is reporting 
Chinese President Xi Jinping informed President Biden last month Beijing plans to reunify Taiwan with mainland China. The message was conveyed as the two leaders spoke on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco in a meeting intended to ease tensions between Beijing and D.C. The Biden administration reportedly rejected a Chinese request to make a public statement saying it supports the goal of peaceful unification and does not support Taiwanese independence. Though the U.S. supports the one-China policy, it maintains cultural and commercial ties with Taiwan and supplies the territory with weapons. U.S. citizens freed in a prisoner exchange with Venezuela were repatriated on Wednesday, while released Colombian businessman Alex Saab landed in Venezuela, where he met with close ally President Nicolas Maduro. Saab, who's accused of money laundering via the U.S. and bribery, was granted clemency by President Biden in exchange for the release of 10 U.S. prisoners. Maduro also agreed to free at least another 20 political prisoners. Separately, Caracas also returned fugitive Malaysian defense contractor Leonard Glenn Francis, who's implicated in a major Pentagon bribery scandal. As he welcomed Alex Saab back at a Caracas news conference, President Maduro welcomed the prisoner exchange as a positive step in U.S.-Venezuela relations. Hopefully the way will be found for a process of respect, equal treatment and understanding between the United States of America and the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. Today a step has been taken that will hopefully contribute to that path. In Argentina, new President Javier Millet ordered a major deregulation of the national economy Wednesday. The far-right libertarian followed through on his campaign promise using executive powers to undo or change 300 rules. These include eliminating laws regulating rents and preventing the privatization of state companies. Millet also announced measures to deregulate labor, trade, tourism, pharmaceuticals, and other areas. Following the announcement, thousands of people took to the streets in the first public demonstration since his inauguration and his threats to crack down on protests. This is Alejandro Badar, Secretary General of the Socialist Workers Movement. I think it is clear that there is a government that is determined to apply a brutal adjustment that has already begun, which has rapidly crushed wages. And in order to make this adjustment happen, they are determined to repress and restrict democratic freedoms. It is unbelievable that a march cannot take place in peace because these people have taken the political decision to prevent it by violating our constitutional rights. India's parliament voted on a number of key bills Wednesday, including contested criminal reform measures after more than 140 opposition lawmakers were suspended this week in a major crackdown by the ruling BJP party. Opposition leaders accused Prime Minister Narendra Modi of trying to hobble a new political alliance that's challenging the BJP in next year's elections. Karti Chidambaram of the Opposition National Congress Party warned after the suspensions, India's parliament is, quote, going to resemble the North Korean Assembly. And influential civil rights lawyer, professor and expert on police brutality, Paul Chavigny has died at the age of 88. As a lawyer with the New York Civil Liberties Union, he founded the Police Practices Project and published two books on abusive policing, including the seminal Police Power, in 1971 case, Hanshu versus Special Services Division, he successfully challenged the New York Police Department's surveillance of political organizations, which at the time included the Black Panther Party and anti-Vietnam War activists. He went on to write about police violence in other countries, including Brazil, Argentina and Jamaica. As a 
professor at NYU Law School. He inspired legions of students. Paul Chavigny is survived by his two children, including the filmmaker Katie Chavigny. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Health officials in Gaza say the death toll from Israel's 10-week bombardment has now topped 20,000, including more than 8,000 Palestinian children. Officials in Gaza say the death toll also includes 97 journalists and 310 healthcare workers. On Wednesday, the political leader of Hamas, Ismail Haniyeh, traveled to Cairo for talks with Egyptian officials about a possible new ceasefire and the exchange of captives. Israel believes about 129 Israeli hostages are still being held in Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is under increasing pressure to secure the release of more hostages after Israeli forces mistakenly shot dead three Israeli hostages who managed to escape captivity in northern Gaza. The three men, who were all shirtless, were shot as they cried for help in Hebrew while holding up a white flag. We're joined now by the Israeli journalist Yuval Abraham. His latest article for 972 magazine and local call is headlined, The Hostages Weren't Our Top Priority, How Israel's Bombing Frenzy Endangered Captives in Gaza. Uh, Ival, if you can start off by talking about um, exactly what you understand happened. Now there is apparently a GoPro on a dog that captured what took place, the reaction of the Israeli public, and then what this means about the Netanyahu administration and how they're dealing or prioritizing or not hostages. Yeah, sure, of course. So these are three hostages. Um, Yotam, Alon, and Samer. One of them is a Palestinian Israeli, two of them Jewish Israelis, uh, who somehow managed to escape um, their captivity. We don't know how. And they roamed around Gaza for a few days. They have written in Hebrew on, on buildings, um, help in Hebrew. Um, hostages are released. They have, as you said, um, communicated the fact they were uh, Israeli captives to, to, to a dog, that an army dog that had a GoPro camera. And they they were I mean essentially executed by by soldiers. Um, they 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 one of them held uh, a, a white flag. They they took off their they approached soldiers. They took off their clothes to show that they were they were not wearing any explosives. Um, and soldiers opened fire at them, immediately killing two of them. Um, the commander on the scene realized that they were perhaps Israelis, and told soldiers to stop firing. Um, the third captive managed to run back to a building. And when he came out, soldiers shot at him again, uh, killing him. And yeah, I mean, I, I've heard, I mean, it's being reported as a mistake that soldiers have made. I think that it was not a mistake when they thought they were Palestinians. I mean, clearly you do not you know, accidentally shoot at somebody who is holding a white flag. Um, and, of course, it becomes a mistake when they realize they're Israeli hostages. And it shocked Israeli society. It triggered protests, um, calling on the Netanyahu government to reach um, a deal uh, with Hamas to release more um, captives and hostages. Um, but... Currently, from the way I am reading both the political situation 
and the public situation, such a deal seems um, unlikely for now. So, Yuval, uh, could you explain why you think uh, such a deal is unlikely? And then tell us what the intelligence sources you spoke to for your piece, what they told you uh, about the concerns that hostages had, the fact uh, that you write in this piece uh, that Israeli hostages often said that they were more afraid of being killed by Israeli airstrikes uh, than they were by Hamas. Yeah, of course. So I, I think it's unlikely because I think Netanyahu politically um, is not going to be willing to pay the price that Hamas is asking, which is to reach a more substantial ceasefire or perhaps a permanent ceasefire and to release a lot of Palestinian prisoners, um, including uh, people like Marwan Baraguti and Ahmad Saadat, who are who are considered to be Palestinian leaders, including many Palestinians who are serving um, you know, uh, long uh, prison sentences in, 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 the, in the occupation jails, um, some of them for, for killing Israeli civilians. And this will, you know, ruin Netanyahu politically even more than he's already ruined, which I think is why he will not do it and why he is, he is you know, making it clear publicly that he plans to continue the war for months. Um, and this relates to, to, to our investigation at Plus 972 magazine because we have basically spoken to uh, Israeli intelligence sources who have described how during the first weeks of Israel's onslaught in Gaza, um, the military knowingly carried out a striking policy, relentless bombardment policy that not only you know, decimated Gaza and killed thousands and thousands of Palestinians, but also endangered Israeli captives um, and hostages. And Sources have told me in intelligence that at the time they had very little intelligence as to where these captives were being held. Um, and that the general atmosphere was in the top military commanders is that uh, the, the hostages are just not a priority, that their safety is, is, is relegated in favor of carrying out this um, bombardment campaign. And... As, as you said, you know, in, in, in the end of November, when, when captives were, were released from Gaza for the first time, many of them have described being hit by Israeli uh, uh, airstrikes or attacks, describing a, a fear, you know, this, this sort of traumatic fear of, of, of feeling that the, the, the power that is supposed to supposedly protect you is actually a very, very, very big threat to your life. You know, uh, um, talking about really being on the verge of death. And we know that in some cases, um, hostages were hit by, by these Israeli attacks. Now, the, the conditions in, in, in the captivity of Hamas uh, were, were horrific for some hostages uh, as well. We also cover that in the report. We also talk about um, testimonies of, of released captivities and sources inside the military of um, sexual assault um, um, against some of the captives. Um, but a recurring theme in many of the testimonies of the captives is really being terrified from the Israeli airstrikes. And again, it seems that at least for the first few weeks of the war, this was um, done knowingly, in a sense, by, by the military. 
Well, I mean, quite rightly, uh, uh, there has been a lot of emphasis on the Israeli hostages. But at the same time, you mentioned earlier Palestinian activist and, and politician Mustafa Barghouti. Uh, speaking to the BBC this morning, he talked about how Palestinian prisoners uh, are not so much the focus of discussion. Uh, some who were released uh, from a detention center in northern Israel uh, earlier, they said uh, that they were they that they were tortured and some died as a result he was speaking to the bbc on thursday yeah it's, it's... he told me they were kept uh, more than 1000 people in detention or concentration camp near Beersheba, and they were beaten badly they were tortured with different methods some people were hit with electrical shocks they also used drowning their heads in the water while they were interrogating them intensively for hours. They are kept in a place which is very cold. They don't have enough clothes and the food they are given is very little. But the most important thing that a number of prisoners that they witnessed died uh, because of the beating and torture. Some of them were all people who had diseases like heart diseases. So that, that's uh, Dr. Mustafa Barghouti speaking earlier today to the BBC. And just a correction, uh, the detention center where the Palestinian prisoners were held was in southern Israel, not northern. Uh, Yuval, your response? Yeah, it's, 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 it's appalling. And I've seen these testimonies. I've also seen live testimonies of, of these um, um, Palestinians being released from Israel interrogation. And, and honestly, it, to me, it, it reminded me of, of scenes that I saw of, of, of Jews in, in Eastern Europe, you know, in the 30s and, 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 and 40s, you see their hands are filled with bruises. They were handcuffed for, for, for hours. Some of them have died. They spoke about being electrified by soldiers, being beaten by soldiers, really torture. I mean, they, 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 you could see on their faces. I mean, it's, 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 it's horrific. And I think that, you know, uh, You've, you've said at the start of, of, of the show that, that now it's more than 20,000 Palestinians who were killed in Gaza, roughly 1% of the population. That's unimaginable numbers. I mean, j- just to put it in, in some sort of proportion for, for audiences in the United States, uh, 1% of the population in the U.S. is 3.3 million people uh, being killed in, mm. in 75 days. And, and yeah, and, 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 I, and I agree with you that... that uh, yeah, in a way, I've heard Israeli journalists using the term war crimes for the first time after the three Israeli hostages were, were, were killed by soldiers. And obviously, obviously, soldiers thought that they were Palestinians, which is why they felt comfortable, it seems, to shoot somebody who is holding a white flag in their hand. And to me, it's, it's, it's really outrageous how there, there is like two completely different sets of, of ways we look at the world not according to the crime, but according to the victim of the crime. Because, you know, how many Palestinians were executed by Israeli soldiers? And, and how often does that happen without any response from journalists, without using words like war crimes? And, 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 and I think that really at the heart of a lot of, of what is going on is this disparity between uh, having some people whose lives have meaning um, and other people whose, whose lives have no meaning for so many people on the, on, on the West and, and, and in Israel. Yuval, I wanted to ask you about the number of prisoners being taken by Israel on the West Bank. We're talking about something like 4,000 uh, just since October 7th. 
Do you have the sense that they are just rounding up people because if, as they negotiate a prisoner exchange, they'll have more to uh, give back? That's one question. And the other is about Human Rights Watch's report released today, Meta's Broken Promises, systemic censorship of Palestine content on Instagram and Facebook. People being systemically knocked off of Facebook and Instagram if they are posting about what's happening uh, to Palestinians. Yeah. So, you know, Israel has a longstanding policy of 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 these mass arrests. Um, we've seen them happening in in the previous Gaza Gaza uh, bombardments, also in 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 2021. Many of these, I think, you know, thousands of these Palestinian prisoners are held without trial, uh, without charges being pressed against them. Even when charges are pressed, the system of of the military occupation and 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 and, and the military judicial system is extremely unjust. Ninety nine points. Four percent of the cases end up in indictment. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think part part of it has to do with um, getting numbers. It seems very logical. I don't have any inside information about it, but but what you suggested seems logical. Again, I think that it, for the next prisoner exchange, Hamas will insist on releasing much more prominent Palestinian prisoners. So, so unlike the last time when really, you know, you saw Palestinian prisoners being released after they spent a short time in prison, I think if for a next hostage deal to take place, there, there will, you know, they will need to have more uh, substantial Palestinian uh, uh, prisoners. And uh, I mean, there is repression online. I know that there are Israeli ministries that are that are constantly uh, working with Meta, with Facebook, with X as well, and with with Instagram um, to 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 aid in this process. There are there have been reports about sort of this. Um, mass scanning that Israel does of of social media to um, find posts to 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 flag in a way for 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 these you know um, international social media organizations and 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 yeah the, the repression is 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 taking place yeah. Yuval Raham, I want to thank you for being with us. Journalist based in Jerusalem who writes for Plus 972 magazine and Local Call. We'll link to your new article, The Hostages Weren't Our Top Priority, How Israel's Bombing Frenzy Endangered Captives in Gaza. Coming up on Wednesday, the U.N. Security Council forced to postpone a vote for the third time in Gaza due to U.S. opposition. We'll speak with Phyllis Bennis back in 20 seconds. Blinding Lights by the weekend. The artist announced earlier this month he would be directing two and a half million dollars to meals for Palestinians in Gaza. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. 
The United Nations Security Council has, for the third time this week, postponed a vote on a resolution calling for a halt to the fighting in Gaza and for Israel to allow shipments of food, water, fuel and medicine into the besieged territory. Several Security Council members have expressed frustration with the United States for repeatedly delaying votes and for threatening to once again veto any resolution. We're joined now by Phyllis Bennis, fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, serves as an international advisor for Jewish Voice for Peace. Phyllis has written a number of books, including Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict. Her recent piece for In These Times headlined The Christmas Truce of 1914 and the Demand for a Ceasefire in Gaza. As we went to air today, Phyllis, there is no a resolution at this point at the U.N. One is expected today, but we said that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. If you can talk about what's going on there. And then we can talk about that Christmas truce as we move into the weekend. This is in some ways an, a very old story. The United States refuses to accept a globally demanded ceasefire in the context of Israeli assaults, particularly on Gaza. And we've seen it before. We're seeing it again now. The U.S. is refusing to allow the term cessation of hostilities. They certainly will not allow the term ceasefire to be used, they want to talk about a suspension of hostilities, meaning just a temporary pause, like we saw two weeks ago, to allow in a certain amount of aid, reduce the pressure on Israel, get some of the hostages released, and then go back to the Israeli assault and kill more thousands of Palestinians, presumably. So what we're looking at is the question of whether the other members of the Security Council will be able to persuade the U.S., and I think this is very doubtful, uh, to change their position and allow decent language about a real cessation of hostilities or a ceasefire. Uh, and if they don't, will the Council go ahead and force the United States to use its veto, something the U.S. does not like to do, or will it essentially collapse under its own pressure and simply withdraw the resolution and say, well, we couldn't get the U.S. on board, so we're not going to go forward. The issue then becomes whether you're letting the U.S. off the hook by saying we will simply, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll, we'll simply withdraw the resolution, or do you force the U.S. to use its veto, which then has consequences, including sending the resolution off to the General Assembly, where it passes under very particular conditions that can make it much more influential and, by some arguments by legal scholars, perhaps enforceable, like a Security Council resolution would be. So that's where the Council is right now. And Phyllis, so if you could explain that, because normally a General Assembly vote is not legally binding in the way that a Security Council right. vote is, which is why there's so much emphasis on what the Security Council does. The particularity here, Nermeen, is that when the U.S. or any other of the five permanent members of the Council actually uses a veto, a new regulation at the U.N. that was passed a couple of years ago requires that the General Assembly then meet within 10 days to take up that same issue. You know, ordinarily, this is very closely held. The Security Council deals with threats to peace and security around the world. The General Assembly can deal with everything else. But when one of the five permanent members, in this case, of course, the United States, uses its veto on an issue of peace and security. Under those conditions, the, the General Assembly is required to hold an emergency session, and it's held under what's known in the U.N. as the Uniting for Peace precedent. 
This was something the U.N. was uh, forced to accept back in 1951 at the instigation, ironically, of the United States. It's how the U.S. got the United Nations to endorse its war in Korea. And under those conditions, the decisions made by the General Assembly, which officially are considered non-binding, not enforceable, take on additional power because it's derivative of United Nations Security Council power. So the, the decisions are, are uncertain whether it's really enforceable, but it's a much stronger resolution in the General Assembly if it follows a veto in the Security Council. That's one of the big reasons why the United States does not like to use its veto uh, if it can avoid it. The other reason, of course, is that it shows the world just how isolated the United States now is. The U.S. and Israel stand alone. The vote in the General Assembly on a very similar resolution was 153 countries out of 193 who voted yes, and only 10 countries, including the U.S. and Israel, voted no. And under those circumstances, it really demonstrates the isolation of the U.S., and that's not something that the Biden administration is eager to be showing up again. Well, if you could say, Phyllis, I mean, talk about the significance of U.S. support. Explain why it's so uh, strident, uh, despite uh, what's happening in Gaza, uh, and also the fact that when Biden did uh, lightly uh, criticize Israel for its indiscriminate b bombardment, saying that it was losing international support, the Israeli foreign minister very quickly said that Israel would continue, quote, with or without international support. Your response yeah. to that, I mean, is that accurate, you think? Right. Well, I think what is true is that the United States has made a number of polite requests of the Israeli government. They have said, please stop killing so many people. What you're doing is OK. Using massive bombardment is OK. But try and pull back a little bit, maybe change the tactics of the ground invasion uh, to, so that you're not killing quite so many civilians. It doesn't look good. But there are no consequences when the Israeli response, as you just said from Prime Minister Netanyahu or others, is simply, no, we're going to continue what we're doing. There's no way that Israel feels compelled to respond to that until the requests become requirements and the requirements come with conditions that make a difference. So that when the United States says, you've got to stop bombing Gaza, you're killing civilians and it's illegal under international law, you've got to stop. And Israel says, nope, we're going to continue. Then the next sentence out of the mouth of President Biden or Secretary of State Blinken or whoever is relaying that message is, OK, then, you know, those billions of dollars we send to your military every year, you can kiss that goodbye. And you know how we've been protecting you at the International Criminal Court so you're never held accountable for war crimes? We're not doing that anymore. So those are the kinds of things that will begin to have a real impact on Israel. As long as the Israelis are clear that the Biden position of what we might call bear hug diplomacy, where the symbolism of his embrace physically and politically of Netanyahu and the Israeli state is we have your back. We will protect you no matter what. But please make a few amendments they have no reason to take that seriously I want to because turn, the U.S. doesn't express it seriously. I want to turn to U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken speaking Wednesday in D.C. at a State Department briefing. I hear virtually no one saying, demanding of Hamas that it stop hiding behind civilians, that it lay down its arms, that it surrender. This is over tomorrow if Hamas does that. This would have been over a month ago, six weeks ago. 
if Hamas had done that? And how could it be? How can it be that there are no demands made of the aggressor and only demands made of the victim? Phyllis Bennis, your response. You know, it's ironic that the secretary of state of Israel's biggest supporter, the provider of 20 percent of its entire military budget, among other things, will move forward to say that it's that there's the need for the people of Gaza, because this war is against the people of Gaza. It is not just against Hamas. That's simply not the case. The notion that the U.S. is saying that the, the demand should be made on Hamas when it's been the United States backing of Israel that has allowed Israel to impose a siege on Gaza for 17 years. We should be clear, this siege did not begin on October 7th. It was escalated after the, the atrocities that were committed on, on October 7th, for sure. But this had been going on for 17 years, harshly enough that 20 percent of all children in Gaza were stunted by the age of two because they could not get sufficient food necessary for children to thrive. That was way before October 7th. So we have to look at this in the context of the ongoing war that Israel has been waging in Gaza, against Gaza, against the people of Palestine. And it's a war that has become genocidal in its impact. So this notion that Secretary of State Blinken, who is desperately trying to divert the focus of U.S. outrage, global outrage at Israel and at the United States for enabling the Israeli war crimes to continue. He's using every possibility that he can. The negotiations are underway between Israel and Hamas in, in Cairo, uh, with Egypt and, and Qatar as interlocutors. There's other negotiations underway, of course, at the United Nations, as we've been discussing. But the bottom line is that Israel has killed 20,000 people, 70 percent of them, children and women. And that doesn't even count the thousands of people that have been killed under the rubble when Israeli bombs have destroyed buildings and homes over people's bodies. So we're looking at something that has never happened at this scale in this century. And that has to be our focus. That's why we need a ceasefire. You're not going to be able to protect this, the hostages and bring them home without a ceasefire. You're not going to be able to bring in sufficient aid to make it possible to stop what is now real starvation in Gaza. We have not seen that before, even under the siege. We have not seen actual starvation. And now the United States, uh, the, sorry, the United Nations World Food Program is saying that more than half of the families in Gaza are starving and that 90 percent are food insecure. That doesn't exist anywhere in the world right now where 50% of a population is starving. And that's what has to stop. And that's why we need a ceasefire to end those realities. And finally, Phyllis, we just have a, a minute. If you could respond to the New York Times-Siena uh, poll that was released <coughs> earlier this week, where it's clear that uh, the, the majority of Americans are opposed, uh, opposed to the, the Biden administration's policy, but in a perplexing uh, finding, uh, a number of them say that they would, in the 2024 election, vote for Trump instead as a result. I can't explain it. I, I don't know exactly what the question was that they asked. And that's always a key part of how this 
how they get answers like this. But I think what's key is the first thing you said, Nermeen, there is massive opposition in this country to what the Biden administration is doing. Eighty percent of Democrats, President Biden's own party, want a ceasefire now. We're seeing massive opposition within the State Department, within the White House, the White House, in, the White House interns, these young, ambitious students, high school and college students, the youngest of the federal workforce, came out publicly and said, we are not the leaders of today, but we aspire to lead in the future, and we cannot stand by and watch this genocide being perpetuated by Israel with our support. That's extraordinary. That's never been seen before in this country. And that's why we say that not only is the U.S. isolated at the United Nations, but the Biden administration on this issue is massively isolated within the United States itself. Phyllis Bennis, I want to thank you for being with us, fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, international advisor for Jewish Voice for Peace. We'll link to your new piece in In These Times, The Christmas Truce of 1914 and the Demand for a Ceasefire in Gaza. Coming up, we look at the Colorado Supreme Court's historic decision to bar Donald Trump from the Colorado primary ballot over his role in the January 6th insurrection, and then his increasingly extreme rhetoric talking about immigrants poisoning the blood of the nation. Back in 20 seconds. Myself and I by De La Soul, Trugoy the Dove, also known as Dave Jalakur, passed away at the age of 54 earlier this year. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We turn now to Colorado, where the state Supreme Court has ruled in a four to three decision to bar Donald Trump from the state's 2024 presidential primary ballot because of his actions during the January 6th insurrection. In an unprecedented decision, the justices ruled that the former president is ineligible to appear on the ballot, citing the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment, which was written to prevent civil war Confederates from returning to government. Section three of the amendment states, quote, no person shall hold any office civil or military under the United States who, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection, end quote. Trump has vowed to appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, where conservatives hold a 6-3 majority. Meanwhile, a number of other states are also considering barring Trump from the ballot. 
We're joined now by the constitutional attorney, John Boniface, president of Free Speech for People, which has filed legal challenges to Trump's eligibility to appear on the ballot in a number of states, including Minnesota, Michigan and Oregon. First, John, if you can talk about what happened in Colorado and respond to those who simply say, why let the courts decide? Why not let the voters decide? Why remove him from the ballot? Well, thank you, Amy, for having me. This was a fantastic victory for our democracy and our Constitution. The Colorado Supreme Court got it right. Donald Trump is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment for inciting, mobilizing, facilitating the insurrection on January 6th. Now, to your question about why not let the voters decide, the fact is, is that our Constitution makes clear that you have to meet certain qualifications to run for president of the United States. That includes being of 35 years or more by the time of the inauguration, being a natural born citizen and not having taken an oath to defend and preserve the Constitution and then turned around and engaged in insurrection. And that is what Donald Trump did. He is disqualified under that critical constitutional provision. It's designed to protect our republic. The framers of the 14th Amendment placed it into the 14th Amendment after the Civil War to ensure that those who threaten the republic by taking that oath of office and then turning around and engaging in insurrection shall never hold public office again. So, John Boniface, could you talk about where else uh, uh, similar uh, decisions may be made? What other states are considering uh, uh, also potentially banning uh, Trump? Well, first, I want to say we congratulate our allies at Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington for their outstanding work in the Colorado case and and achieving this victory. And we're proud to have helped catalyze the movement and the work around the country to uphold Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. At Free Speech for People, we have filed similar challenges to Donald Trump's eligibility in Minnesota, in Michigan, and in Oregon. And two of those cases, Michigan and Oregon, are now pending before their state Supreme Courts. Just yesterday, we notified both of those courts via supplemental authority letters of the Colorado decision and making clear of its application to our cases in Michigan and Oregon. And we have been also quite public that we intend to file additional challenges very soon in other key states. The the key question here is now what will the Supreme Court do? Will they take this case and how will they rule? But I also want to add another critical question is what will election officials do all across the country? They have the mandate to follow the mandate of the Constitution to follow what the constitutional requirements are here for placing candidates on the presidential primary ballot. And that includes Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And they now have a state Supreme Court ruling making clear that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and is disqualified. And they ought to follow that ruling and bar him from their state ballots as well. 
I want to read to you a quote from former Biden administration official Tim Wu, who's a professor at Columbia University. He wrote on the platform X, quote, this may be an unpopular post, but I think we need to realize that using undemocratic means to fight candidate Trump increases the odds of losing democracy itself. I don't mean you should ignore clear cut violations of the law, for example, accounting fraud in the New York case. But anything that feels like a reach is dangerous, uh, Tim Wu said. If you could respond to that, uh, uh, John, and also the fact that Biden uh, was asked uh, about the Colorado decision on Wednesday, uh, and this was his response. Well, I think certainly you're self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. And uh, he seems to be doubling down on about everything. So, John, your response to what President Biden said and then also Columbia law professor Tim Wu. Well, just on Columbia law professor Tim Wu, and I, I admire his work, but I think he's wrong on this matter. This is not an anti-democratic fight in the courts. This is, in fact, a fight to protect our democracy and to protect our Constitution. We cannot ignore what the clear language of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is and the reasons why the framers of the 14th Amendment placed that into the Constitution. This was right after the Civil War. There were ex-Confederates who sought to remain in power or to attain power. And a clear decision was made by those who drafted the 14th Amendment, by the Congress that passed it and the states that enacted it, that those who take an oath of office to defend our Constitution and then turn around and engage in insurrection, as the Confederates did, are barred from ever holding public office again. They represent a threat to our republic. And now we have the second insurrection in our nation's history on January 6, 2021. Donald Trump incited that insurrection. He mobilized it. He engaged in that insurrection. And he is barred from holding future public office. This is about protecting our democracy. If we ignore this provision of the Constitution, we make it a dead letter and we set a very dangerous precedent going forward that people can ignore their oath of office and engage in future insurrections. As to President Biden's comments, I think he's absolutely right that Donald Trump has proven to be an insurrectionist and the courts must uphold Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. John Boniface, we want to thank you so much for being with us, president of Free Speech for People, which has filed legal challenges to Trump's eligibility to appear on the ballot in a number of states, including Minnesota, Michigan and Oregon. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. We end today's show looking at Donald Trump's increasing authoritarian rhetoric on the campaign trail. Over the weekend, Trump claimed immigrants are poisoning the blood of the country. When they let, I think the real number is 15, 16 million people into our country, when they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison. Trump's remarks sparked widespread criticism. Vice President Kamala Harris said Trump's words were, quote, similar to the language of Hitler. On Tuesday, Trump doubled down during a campaign stop in Iowa. It's crazy what's going on. They're ruining our country. And it's true. They're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They don't like it when I said that. And I never read Mein Kampf. They said, oh, Hitler said that in a much different way.
Trump was standing between two Christmas trees. We're joined right now by Jeff Charlotte, award-winning journalist and author, professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth College, author of several books, including The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Of course, Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary are the first two for the Republicans. The Democrats have changed their primary schedule. Jeff, first respond to this poisoning of the blood and the comparisons to Adolf Hitler. Um, his um, wife, Ivana Trump, the mother of his first three children who died uh, falling down the stairs uh, a little while ago, um, had said that he had a book of quotes of, uh, of um, Adolf Hitler on his bedstand. Take it from there, Jeff. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that uh, Trump volunteers. I haven't read Mein Kampf. Um, and in fact, the book he's alleged to have had and seems to pretty certainly have had was a different book of Hitler's. Um, but what's fascinating to me is he's going out of his way to say that and to repeat that language after it's already, the comparison's already been made. And I think he's invoking that because it's chaos in his drama. And I think he's counting that in his base uh, he's going to be more helped by the high drama of Hitlerian apparatus in World War II than the comparison to the worst fascist dictator in history. I don't think he's dodging and I think he's going toward it. So what do you think, Jeff, of the uh, the consequences of not taking these words of Trump's seriously? And also, you know, is this likely to diminish his support or, in fact, increase it? I mean, we can uh, we just all we need to do is sort of look what's happening. It's increasing the support. Again, he's understanding that drama and spectacle are what he pervades. But in terms of not taking it seriously, uh, I'm glad I, it, I'm, a lot of the press is still covering this race like it's a, a horse race as opposed to uh, a, a last gasp of the closest thing we could, you know, uh, let's hold on to what we have of American democracy we're starting to look at something called Project 2025. This is a 900-page blueprint put together by Trump's allies, the Heritage Foundation, funded by Coke money. Uh, press has made a lot of Coke about the Cokes endorsing Nikki Haley, but they're covering their bets. Um, a 900-page blueprint for day one. Remember, Trump says from day one, on day one, I'm going to be a dictator. Um, which is another bit of language that I think he's kind of rope-a-doping the press. I'm going to be a dictator. I'm just joking. Now, now, on day one, I'm going to be a dictator. Just joking. What was that word I kept saying? Dictator. Again, it's even more important than the substance is the spectacle, the drama that makes him the exciting, and in fascist terms, the man of action. Then you've got this 900-page document that lays out agency by agency, uh, with every right wing think tank on board, uh, with the personnel, uh, 20,000 personnel already figured out, recruiting 5,000 lawyers to fight for this, um, with I, talking about concentration camps, domestic surveillance, um, uh, all the, the facets of a full sized fascist government. Um, he doesn't have to have read that, just like he doesn't have to have read Mein Kampf to hit those notes. So, in the 2025 document that people should understand, this 30-chapter, as you said, 920-page document funded by the Heritage Foundation, the Koch brothers, talking about defunding the Department of Justice, dismantling the FBI, breaking up the Department of Homeland Security, Departments of Education and Commerce. And 
Your title of your book, uh, the subtitle of The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Can you tease that out as we move into 2024, what you mean by a slow civil war? Yeah, I think the slow civil war, I mean, first of all, we look at the casualties of um, that are already happening. People, pregnant people are forced to, to have children or suffering, physically even dying. Uh, the epidemic of trans and queer suicide um, uh all these facets of, of, of a growing uh, 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 concentration of fascist policy. But the slow civil war also takes place through lawfare, um, through the laws that prevent people from getting the things they need. There are casualties of that. What we see in that document is the blueprint for a massive acceleration of it. It's an eight, it's, the, the plan is based around 180 days. And they go back to... Heritage Foundation made its name by making a similar docket, document for Ronald Reagan in 1980, 60% of which was implemented within the first six months of his administration. They cite that and they say, OK, but that was for Reagan. Now we're in the age of Trump. We need to go much further. That's the term that they actually use, much further. So, Jeff, how representative would you say this document is to the far right conservative movement? And do you think, irrespective of whether Trump is elected or not, uh, some of these uh, policies will be carried through or an attempt will be made to uh, carry them through? Yeah, I think that's the other thing we have to remember. One, uh, through some fluke of fate. Uh, it, it is, after all, Nikki Haley, a, a possibility I don't take seriously. But if it does happen, um, this is ready made for her as well. But it's also ready made for right wing activism. It's a, it's putting the stamp of Trumpism. And that's coming not from one group or another that's been taken over but Heritage Foundation, Alliance for Defending Freedom, which is the group arguably responsible for overturning Roe. We see the Christian right organizations. We see the libertarian big business organizations. We see the intellectuals, as it were, of the right-wing movement, Claremont Institute, Hillsdale College, is a convergence. The document represents uh, 400 contributors, many, many of them former Trump officials, uh, defense contractors. So I think what it, it's a document also meant to display once and for all the full sort of uh, application of the competence of the wonks put to work for the fury of Trump's fascism and to sort of say, OK, everybody's on board. This is the shape. This is the project. The project is Trumpism, uh, regardless of where the man is. Finally, you're in New Hampshire, Jeff. Um, Nikki Haley got the endorsement of the governor there, of uh, Governor Sununu, the significance of this and her response to President Trump talking about the um, uh, the comments about uh, the blood and um, uh, the polluting of the blood of this country, uh, she said are simply not helpful. If you can end by talking about what this language does and how it shapes the entire discourse and what you think the media needs to do in response— I've been impressed, actually, that they have stepped up a little bit more than they have been recently uh, with just not just that language, but vermin and uh, uh, um, this kind of exterminationist language. It's important to remember that poisoning the blood doesn't just come from Mein Kampf, but it runs uh, like a very poisonous undercurrent through American right wing rhetoric. 
uh, I'm looking at a document from 1957, a call by the American Mercury, a right-wing publication for citizens' trials. And it reads like it could have been written yesterday, and it talks about poisoning the blood. This is this kind of low thrum that's always been there. And Trump is now putting it on the national stage, giving it that platform uh, that the far right has always wanted and was just a little bit, I think, afraid to claim. They were worried if we say this out loud, maybe we'll lose the people. And now they're discovering that the people they want are coming to them because they are naming the F word fascism out loud. Jeff Charlotte, we want to thank you for being with us. Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College, author of several books, including The Undertow, Seems from a slow civil war. That does it for our show, Democracy Now! Produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Guster, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Trina Nadura. Special thanks to Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks for joining us.